Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I am your host. Uh, my name is Katie Morton. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, and I will be answering all of your questions. And if you're new here, welcome. Welcome to the community. If you're wondering where I gather these questions, they're over on the community tab of my podcast channel. And that channel is called Opinions That Don't Matter. That's the name of the podcast I do with my husband, Sean. So you can go over there and on Sundays, I ask for your questions and I pull them. Okay. I'm pretty sure you guys know the drill, but just in case we have new people, I want them to know where they can get their questions answered. So let's move right into question number one. And that question says, hi, Katie, what's the best way to build self-esteem after years of emotional and physical abuse? That's a good question. I was abused as a child and feel like no matter how hard I try, my inner monologue or slash strongly held beliefs always resort back to what I was told as a child. I've tried many things to change this, but it is so deeply set. Thank you. This is a great question. And if you guys don't know, I have a new book out called Traumatized, where I address a lot of things regarding the healing from abuse, whether, you know, emotional, physical, sexual, whether it happened in childhood or adulthood, I dig into all of those things and even inner child work, which I'll get into a little bit here, what that means and how we can do that. So just wanted to let you know, you can find Traumatized in audiobooks or Kindle versions or wherever books are sold. Okay, now back to this question. Building self-esteem, I'll approach this from a couple of angles. Now, when it comes to abuse that we sustained in childhood, it's like we never had a self-esteem because we were never given an opportunity to even develop it. Because if you think about it, as children, we try new things, right? We participate in activities and we do things. And we, uh, you know, how many times have you heard? children say, you know, like, mom, 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 or dad, 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 or they want their attention. They're like, see, want to watch me, watch me do this. Watch me jump into the water. Watch me do this trick. Watch me show you what I can do. Kids want to show their parents all the new things they're learning because number one, it's super new. And number two, because they're proud, because then the parents say, wow, that's so cool. You did such a good job, right? And we we congratulate. I'm even doing that right now. We have a puppy, Roxy. And when she goes potty outside, I'm like, good potty. What a good girl. You know, gets a treat because we're potty training her and she's doing great, by the way. But that positive, it's not even just affirmation, but it's like positive reinforcement helps us build this healthy level of self-esteem and confidence and the fact that we we believe through repeat experiences that were worthwhile. Now, if during that time in childhood, instead of someone saying like, good job, amazing, we're being abused in some way, we can think we're always doing things wrong. Nothing that we do is ever right. Um, and we can we can act out in a lot of different ways. But one of those is when we grow up and we become older, it's, we struggle to feel like we have any self-worth because essentially no one in our life has ever told us we do. Now, some of that work, okay, so I just wanted to like, help you understand where that's coming from. Some of that work because of that, where it's born from, like being abused as a child, is gonna come through inner child work. Now, inner child work, sometimes sounds a little woo-woo, but I promise you it's extremely beneficial and it's an amazing therapeutic tool. And what inner child work really is, is when we get ba get back in touch or continue to be in touch with the child of us that was harmed. So let's say, you know, we sustained some abuse when we were seven or eight. Can we think back to the, the child of us at that age and what we were going through, what we were thinking and feeling? 
Are we able to dig back into that? As I'm sure when I'm saying this, you're thinking, oh my God, that's so overwhelming, Katie. I don't think I could do that. That's why this is often done. And I recommend it to be done with the support of a therapist because it can be so incredibly triggering and potentially re-traumatizing. We want to make sure it's done properly and at a nice, healthy, and safe pace. Got it? Cool. So the inner child work will push you to get in touch with that child and then be able to offer the child you the things that you weren't offered like maybe it's safety and security if that feels too triggering or overwhelming maybe it's just offering the child you a neutral place where things don't go wrong to them right things aren't harmful maybe it's some of those good mother good father messages like you're important i hear you i see you maybe it's some of those things we need to hear maybe it's we need someone to come when we cry and to care for us when we're wounded and in that way we can do those things for ourselves where we make appointments to see doctors and we clean up any owies we have and put fresh band-aids on them and then we tell ourselves which i know people are like katie this sounds so weird but i promise you this works then we tell ourselves you're going to be okay you're important i love you you know we do those soothing messages that we wish our parent did and the soothing behaviors that we wish they did we can do those for ourselves now i know a lot of you but i think well i found the perfect partner you know girlfriend boyfriend or whomever to be with me and they do those things for me okay sure i'll give you that you're in a relationship that's healthy and you feel like they're able to give you the things that your parent should have given you but i'm here to tell you that that never ends well because people in our lives can let us down they're human too they may not be there all the time when we need them and we cannot rely on outside assistance to heal this inner child it has to be done in-house we have to do it for ourselves and so i think my guess would be that that's really where the healing of this will come from like that's where we'll we'll dig into and it will you know come to fruition it'll be like the little seed that sprouts and and builds our our tree of recovery grows however i want to dig into one more component of this and that could be what we call kind of like building mastery when it comes to dbt or dialectical behavior therapy and building mastery is when we work on something that maybe we're like decent at but we're not great and that could be anything from uh cooking taking a cooking class or like we cook a certain food really well or maybe it's uh playing an instrument or we're really good at organizing or we're really good at planning adventures or i don't know what is it that we're good at and then i want you to focus some of your time and effort on getting better and better at those things and as we build mastery meaning as we get better we start to feel naturally some healthy self-confidence grow and it takes some time and it takes some effort but i promise you it'll be worth it and that's just another component i think i would probably work on both of these things um also another way to build self-esteem just to throw it out there and i have a video on my channel i have a bunch of videos about this but i have a recent video i think it's like building more confidence like five ways for building more confidence i don't know it came out in like december 2019 i think anyway Another way to build the self-confidence, self-esteem is to be really kind to other people. Like I told a lot of you, if I'm having a really like shit day, I'll get on uh, online and just leave people nice comments. Like I'll comment back to you, to those of you in the community, leaving comments on videos or on Instagram. I'll comment on my friends' posts. I'll, it, I know it seems silly, but me being kind to someone else, I feel like I get just as much, if not more, out of it. So that's just another way. And then, of course, you guys know how much I hate that negative self-talk it's bad. It's holding us back and ruining our self-esteem. So paying attention to the things that we're saying 
to ourselves, about ourselves, and working to make those just a little less shitty. They don't have to be positive, but I want you to be more bridge statement-like, meaning instead of like, I'm I'm so horrible at this and no one's ever going to love me, I want you to think, you know, it's possible that I'm good at something else and I'm open to the hope that maybe in the future I'll find someone who cares about me. Now I know you're like, Katie, that's not positive, but it's better than the shitty negative self-talk. It's moving us little, like building this bridge, right? Bridge statements to a more positive outlook. So those, I know that's a lot that I threw at you, but those are some of the things um, that we can do and the ways that we can work to heal and to build build some of that healthy self-esteem. Okay, there was a comment on this and it says, and how do you heal from emotional abuse anyways? Can talking about it in therapy and sharing your upcoming feelings be helpful in healing? 100%, yes. Or are certain CBT techniques and different types of therapy like inner child work also a part of treatment? Yes, they also can be. Everybody's gonna be different. I always hate to say that there's like one treatment that's going to help us, but talk therapy is a great place to start. In my book, by doing research, for for the book traumatized i was just telling you about i realized that about 60 percent of people do not find talk therapy to be enough meaning 40 percent of us are like hooray i talked about it i feel better however when it comes to abuse and trauma 60 percent of us are like yeah, it's kind of okay but it's not all the way better and we need something else like a emdr or maybe medication or maybe another type of therapy like somatic experiencing we might need something else and also there is trauma-focused or TF-CBT, so trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy. And that's supposed to be the best when it comes to this type of treatment, just FYI. And the person says, and what if you additionally want to learn some techniques and coping mechanisms to process it, but your therapist usually just talks to you about how you feel and what happened and educates you on the topic in general. Thanks for everything you do. Yeah, of course. Um, let your therapist know that that doesn't work for you. It, I know a lot of us feel like once we go to a professional that they know what's best. And as a professional, I can say in a lot of ways, I am an expert on certain, I don't know, uh, groups of studies. Like I'm I'm really good at treating eating disorder, self-injury, and I'm learning more about trauma each and every day. And would while I wouldn't call myself a trauma expert, I would call myself a very well a very well-informed or trauma-informed therapist. Um, and if if your therapist is ever doing something that you don't love and it's not helpful, like you're, they're just talking about how you feel and what happened, they're not like really digging in, you need to let them know. See, I feel like we always talk about these things in general, but I'm really wanting to dig, like to really dig in here. Wow, I just had a little stutter. Um, and if they don't change, and if they, you know, maybe don't validate that what you're asking of them or act like it's, I don't know, kind of dismiss your idea, then it might behoove you to find someone else. Some, maybe someone who is trauma informed or is a trauma specialist so that you can get the support that you need. Okay. Now, another comment on this, I think this is the last comment. Yeah. It says, what is the difference between having a parent or lover that is emotionally abusive or, and in quotes, just has some unhealthy patterns that manifest in relationships? For example, my mom had some mental breakdowns in front of me and my siblings, but it wasn't something that happened every week. Doesn't have to happen every week, by the way. More like every other month or so for a, uh, for a timeline of probably two years, depending on how she felt. 
She also said she wanted to kill herself maybe like seven times in total in front of us or hinted at. That's abusive. That's emotional abuse. Um, sometimes being connected with certain conditions, which I'm aware is emo emotional blackmail-ish and therefore abusive behavior. Yes. And if any of you are out there wondering what emotional blackmail is, emotional blackmail is when we like threaten to kill ourselves if someone doesn't do something. So or threaten to harm ourselves in some way. It's not always kill ourselves, but just to hurt ourselves. Like if you don't come and get me, I'm going to be forced to, let's say you call somebody and you're really drunk or inebriated in some way, right? Under the influence. And you call somebody and you're like, well, if you don't come and get me, then I'm just going to drive myself over to wherever you need to go. And the person's like, oh my God, I don't know. That's emotional blackmail. You're saying, if you don't do this thing that I'm, I'm asking of you, I'm asking you for a favor, but if you say no, then something bad could happen to me. And you know, you have to deal with the guilt of that. That's very manipulative behavior. And that, so that's what that means. Um, and that's just one example, by the way. Uh, okay, where was I at? It says, um, from time to time, she would try to seek help and emotional support from me. Oh, that seems like parentification of children. That's not healthy either. Or especially my older sister in neither a healthy nor appropriate way. Is emotional parentification in general something you would consider emotionally abusive? 100% I would. Does emotional abuse always have to involved being criticized, insulted, or belittled. Not always, but that, that usually is part of it. But again, not always. I have a video, I think it's like the five signs of emotional abuse. And a lot of them don't have anything to do with like being criticized. Some of them do, but there's other ways we can be emotionally abused where um, like the complete, uh, what's it like? Oh, I'm trying to think of the word I'm looking for. It's almost like a complete disregard for boundaries, for healthy emotional or physical boundaries with us. That's emotional abuse as well. Okay. And would you consider this more of an unhealthy, unhealthy relationship with some wrong behaviors or classified as being emotionally abusive in general? I would say it's emotionally abusive in general. Where does unhealthy and maybe toxic behavior end and emotional abuse start? I know that the boundaries or transition to someone being abusive are often smooth and gradual, yes, but I would love to get some signs or indications for distinguishing between making mistakes repeatedly or having some unhealthy patterns and being abusive. Now, this I thought this last bit of this question was really interesting because if someone makes mistakes repeatedly or has unhealthy patterns, it's in the patterns and the repetition that we can find like abusive behavior. I, I just feel like even the fact that this this behavior by your mom was repeated, one-offs are accidents and oopsies and I was stressed or I was having a shit day and I took it out on you. I'm so sorry. Those are like little blips. Oop. But if someone is repeatedly like in a year or even in six months, we see this happening with with like pretty much with some consistency, right? It's a pretty much predictable pattern. That is when things are extremely toxic and potentially abusive. Now, the, I think the real, uh, I'm looking this up really quick. Sorry if you hear me typing. I'm pulling up my my old doc about abuse because I think what we're, what we're struggling with here is what is emotional abuse and what isn't, right? And let me go back to this question just to make sure I'm not missing anything. Yeah, it says, you know, someone who just has unhealthy patterns that manifest in relationship or what's emotional abuse. So here is what emotional abuse is. When we blame or scapegoat someone, like in this case, we're talking about children, a parent to a child. If a child or if a parent tries to blame the child for everything, the parent never taking responsibility for their own actions. Like if you hadn't done that, then I wouldn't have had to insert abusive behavior, like yell at you like that, or I wouldn't have had to ignore you for a week or whatever. If a parent is like ignoring you for a week, that's emotional abuse, okay? 
So any of that blaming, shaming, scapegoating, that's all emotional abuse. Um, if you make the child the subject of jokes, like using sarcasm to hurt a child, and you wouldn't say, oh, that's not like screaming, you're not insulting them, but you're like, you're teasing and, and sarcastically saying something about them and that's abusive. Also, you know, the threatening shouting, we talked about that. And I know that's not the case here, but I just want people out there to know that if that's something you're going through, that's emotional abuse too. Or if we humiliate or constantly criticize a child. So if we're putting them down or making, you know, saying like, humiliating is a really important key to this. And that could be, I had a, this is a, um, a patient of mine back when I worked in the hospital system. So not just my patient, like an outpatient one-on-one, -on -one, but someone that was part of this group that I ran. And one thing her mother would do, which I thought was just horrible, would tell these like really embarrassing stories about her to her, the mom's friends, but she'd do it in front of her daughter. So she, she knew that her mom was talking about her this way and talking about like the, you know, how she wet the bed, the, you know, like last year or something. And she was seven years old. She knew better. Oh, and like laughing at her expense and humiliating her or talking about, you know, the first time she started her period, just things that, that first of all, you don't go telling in making fun of your child with friends around. Also, you don't do it in front of your child. If you want to go with your friends and talk about how difficult your child is being, do that outside of the home where your child can't hear. That's not appropriate. And they, sh I know parents have a tough time. I'm not saying we can't be frustrated and have a down day, but we can't, we shouldn't humiliate our children. Don't want them to know things like that. Um, and then there's another, like if you make your child perform degrading tasks, like, oh, you dropped it on the floor, uh, lick it up. Like I've had uh, viewers of mine and patients of mine in the past tell me about that. Then, and I'm just going through these because I want us all to be clear, being absent. We don't talk enough about emotional neglect. So if a parent just is not around or if they're there, they're not emotionally available, that's emotional abuse. Or not allowing your child to have friends, isolating them. No one can come over to the house. I've heard that all the time how parents will be like, you can't have friends over. What? I'm sorry. What? That's emotional abuse. Um, you know, exposing a child to upsetting events or situations, like if they're watching you do, like maybe they're watching, uh, you know, you do take drugs or drink or, um, I'm not saying just drink like, and just having a glass of wine. I'm saying like, if you're like doing shots with friends and stuff, like your child shouldn't see you do things like that's not appropriate. Um, you know, pushing the child too hard to not recognize their limitations is another one. Um, manipula manipulating the child, never saying anything kind or expressing positive feelings or congratulating them on any successes. You can see how that is all emotional abuse. And from the person who asked this question, I believe what your mother did was emotional abuse. And so if you have any questions about that, just know that, that from what you've told me, that's where I would place it. And I don't really see much of a difference in all honesty between having these patterns of unhealthy or toxic behavior and emotional abuse. Okay. I hope that's clear, you guys. I hope I wasn't belaboring that too much. I just want to make sure that we, like I go through some of the signs and symptoms and ways and we can kind of all be on the same page. And with that, let's move on to question number two. It says, hi, Katie, happy Thursday. Did going to school to be a therapist bring things up for you? I just started my program and program and I'm loving it, but I've noticed a lot of people in my program are struggling to an extent because the content brings up past trauma. Interesting. I have been reflecting more on things, even though mine has been fully processed for a while. Any tips for this? A lot of us are going back to therapy, but anything else we should do? It seems like everyone is trying to figure out how to handle it. Thanks for all that you do. Of course, I, I really love this question because it is going into the psychology field. I know a lot of you out there really want to become therapists or social workers, counselors, things like that. That is wonderful. However, it going to school for it can bring things up for you. 
in a lot of different ways. Now, personally, there was nothing that was super, super triggering, but like I've told you guys over the years, if any of you are new, you might not have heard this story, but I actually didn't want, I didn't think, it's not that I didn't want, I didn't think that I could successfully treat someone with an eating disorder because one of my close friends in high school struggled with one, still struggles a little bit to this day. And I was like, oh, because it's too close to home, I could never I could never. And also I even had a friend in college overdose on heroin and die. And that was really hard for me. And I was like, I don't think I can treat drugs and alcohol because I was still like angry about it and sad and frustrated. And so going through the different like fields could have, I guess I could say it was a little triggering to me. And it brought up some issues in my life and things that I'd gone through. And I tried to place limitations on myself where I'm like, hey, I, I am in therapy and I'm so glad you're saying you're starting therapy up. I, I don't think anybody should be a therapist without having been in therapy or even be a professional in the mental health space. You need to know what it's like to be on the flip side of it. And you have to figure out your own shit so you don't bring it into session with your patients, right? But going back to what I was saying, it did bring up some things for me. And within my own just like process, I was like, maybe that means that those are my limitations as a clinician. Like maybe I can't see patients who struggle with these X, Y, or Z. But then when I was looking for a job that paid, because, hey, I put myself through school and needed to make money. Surprise, surprise, you know, you have to make money when you're working. But so many people don't when you're an intern or just out of school. I found a job that paid uh, at an eating disorder treatment center. And I went when I, I didn't think I was going to take the job. And one of my friends at the time was like, do it, Katie, you need the money. And you, who knows, you could be really good at it. You could really like it. You should try. And so kind of against my own judgment, I was like, okay, well, I'll at least do the interview and I'll see what it's like and blah, blah, blah. And then when I got the job, I decided to give it a trial run, a try. And yeah, I loved it. Never look back. Super rewarding work. I'm glad that I didn't let that one concern stop me from doing, you know, what I, what I was, I think, meant to do. So all of that to say that it didn't really, I mean, it brought some things up for me, but being in therapy is key. As a mental health professional, we should all be in therapy because how can we practice what we preach if we don't even go to therapy ourselves and don't even understand our own shit? And that will ensure we don't bring, we don't transfer in our own stuff into the session, which if you didn't know is called like counter-transference. So it's like when a patient brings their stuff into the room, which they're supposed to, we're not supposed to react to it. And if we do, that's counter-transference. And that means we need to get our shit together as therapists. Um, but other things that you can do, it is, it, it's been key for me having different groups of individuals who are also mental health professionals that you talk with. Now, it's when I was in school, it was the people I was going to school with. Then when I got out, it was all of my friends. Because I, you know, if you're in a certain field, I'm sure all of you can relate to this. When you're in school, you're going to all the classes with people in the same types of fields. So a lot of my friends from college are also either social workers, therapists, and things like that. And so I keep in touch with them. Like Rocio is a social worker. My friend Abba is a social worker. I talk to them all the time about work and what we're doing. And obviously you can't disclose about patients, but you can disclose your own struggles and things you're thinking about. And, oh, it was really hard. And man, this pandemic has been super stressful and I'm feeling it on both ends, right? You can talk to them about it. That's key. Please keep those relationships going. And then something I was really, really glad that I did, and kudos to Dr. Fogelson, he's a psychiatrist that reached out to me to ask if I would be part of his his group. It's like a supervision group, for lack of a better term. And every week, or no, every week, every month we get together and we can talk about new research that's in the field or bring up cases that we're having a tough time with. And we kind of take turns around. There were like six of us. And 
it was really, really helpful to have that as a sounding board as well. So it wasn't just people my age who I went to school with doing similar things. It was like this group of psychiatrists and doctors and uh, psychologists and, and social workers and therapists like myself doing their thing. And it was really, we have my puppy drinking. So I hope that doesn't bother you. Anyway, it was really nice to have all those people there to get, is to have a sounding board, right? To have people that are, can, can give me perspective and also ensure that I'm taking care of myself. And yes, I know this kind of sounds like a, a lot to consider and a lot to do, but it's really just, you're setting yourself up for success. You're giving yourself support so that you have other people you can talk to about what you do. And I think that is really key. Okay. You're going to be great. I'm so excited for you. And we can really hear it. she's thirsty. You guys, it's hot today. <laughs> okay, moving on to question number three. It says, hi, Katie. Is it possible for someone with narcissistic personality disorder to be aware that they have the disorder? This is a great question. It seems like a lot of therapists and people in general are under the impression that if someone admits they have NPD, then they can't actually be a narcissist. That's not true. I feel that this is stigmatizing and prevents those who have NPD from getting help. What do you think? Thanks for all you do. Now, there are two comments after this, but let's just dig into this first part of this question because I think it's a really good question and something that we should talk about. Now, yes, it is possible for someone with narcissistic personality disorder to be aware that they have it, maybe because someone's told them or they've been in a you know fight or disagreement, or maybe they've been to cu couples counseling. Some people might find themselves in couples counseling because they'll think, oh, it's the other person's fault and I'm just there to like prove that that's the case. And so we might have an inkling and also everybody's different like I, I honestly believe that people who are really like have a very very intensive and what's the word I would call like not not palpable but like a very deep rooted narcissistic personality disorder like their symptoms are very strong I guess I don't believe that they they can they would agree. They would think that that it's a lie that they don't have NPD and that everyone around them are the, they're the narcissists and they're the losers and what the fuck is wrong with you, okay? But a lot of people have symptoms of it or what I would call maybe a more light experience or expression of the symptoms and they could be aware and they could want to improve. I've heard from some of you in our community that like you've been diagnosed with it, but you're really doing your best to like try to make it better. And so I just want everybody to know that I believe there's a spectrum to almost every diagnosis and there's always room for people to recognize it and try to change. Now I know you're thinking, well, that goes against like the diagnosis of MPD. And that's why I'm saying that some people have like every symptom possible and others have just enough to meet the criteria, right? Because I think it's like there's nine criteria, at least in the DSM, and you have to have five. So some people might have all nine and others might have five. So I think within that differentiation, we might have people who are able to acknowledge that they have it and work to work to be better as much as they can maybe do some trauma work because that's usually what you know MPD is born out of not always but often and then we have other people who have all nine and they're like fuck you this is stupid you're all wrong why do you try to blame me I never do anything wrong I am in it I am unable to apologize I shame and blame everybody else and I, I rule the world with guilt and stuff like that um, and so those people I do not believe will be able to be aware and I know we're, we're wanting like a cut and dried answer, but that's really it. Everyone's going to express it differently. And some people will be able to admit that they have it and try, usually if they're able to admit that they have it, 
They recognize the way that it's impacting their life. Maybe not, but again, some people will. And I don't think it's a hard and fast rule. I think they can be aware and yet still engage in the behaviors, okay? And I agree that that this that kind of assumption not that it's stigmatizing so much but i think it could prevent those with npd from getting help or it could you know um discourage people from from reaching out or speaking up okay and the comment on this said can narcissists truly believe they're superior over others or does there always have to be some self-doubt that they're trying to cope with or cover up there's always the self-doubt or lack of self-esteem or that, that fragile inner self that always exists, but they don't always, they don't always have the awareness that it exists. Does that make sense? It's like, I'd even argue we all kind of have this, like there's a level of awareness that we have when we're just go about going about our day. And then there's another level of awareness when we're like actually sitting down and contemplating our situation, our life, how we feel, etc. Now, when it comes to narcissists, they don't often spend that time. They could, again, some people can, but most don't spend that time to recognize that it's this fragile self that they're trying to cover up because they have put on this false front for so long, they believe that that's their true self. They've honestly maybe never known their true self, which is kind of sad if you think about it. So they do believe that they are superior over others and most of them don't feel that self-doubt when uh, their supply is removed or meaning when they like a relationship ends or someone stops feeding into their narcissism when that happens they can sometimes get a glimmer of that inner sad person you know that's like doubtful and, and abused usually um but not always and then someone else said and what do you do if someone has npd but they are denying it oh that's so common and their behaviors are very toxic toward other people is there any way you could help them nope or should i just give up on it since they're denying their diagnosis unfortunately we cannot make someone acknowledge their diagnosis accept it do anything to change i know this fact of life sucks it sucks in a lot of ways it sucks that we can't make people get better as a therapist i understand that's frustrating me every day since i started practicing that i'm like man if they would just do this homework i know it's hard but fuck, it would really help Ugh, so frustrating or I wish my friend would really get into therapy. That would really help them. We can't make them do it. They have to want to do it themselves. We can support positive behavior. So if they bring up like, hey, I was, you know, you brought up that therapist thing and like, I don't know, you can support and be like, yeah, it's been great, you know, and be like supportive. Hey, I, I can take you if you want, or if you have questions about it, I'm open to answering them. We can be supportive in that fashion. But that's about as far as it goes. We can't make them do it. We can't, uh, force them to understand or acknowledge that their their behavior towards other people is toxic. If they really do really have NPD, it's very common that they think that they're always right. Everybody else is always wrong, meaning they'd never apologize in a real way. They might be like, I'm so sorry you feel that way. And you're like, that's a fake apology. Fuck you, right? And they'll tend to use blame, shame, and guilt to control so that they can get their needs met and not have to acknowledge their role in the in the fight or the toxic behavior. Does that make sense? I hope that that helps. And I'm sorry that that's the case, but unfortunately that's kind of the case with everything and it sucks. Okay, let's move on to question number four. And this question says, hi, Katie, have your clients ever gotten mad or angry at you during a session? Oh yeah. If so, do you ever get frustrated with them or not want to work with them anymore? We'll talk about this, this is a great question. How would you go about it? And a comment said, as an add-on, how do you start talking about something if you know you have anger inside of you and you're worried it's going to come out in therapy? What if I can't keep it under control? I'm hopefully starting therapy with a new therapist and I don't know how to bring a few things up. 
All good questions. Now, back to the top. Yes, I've had patients get mad or angry. I've had kind of the whole, the whole gamut. So my eating disorder patients get mad in general because A, I call them out on all their eating disorder behaviors and B, I push them to not do them and C, I won't let them use them in session or when we're out at a therapeutic meal experience. So what that looks like is me them pretending everything's fine. <laughs> yeah, I don't mean to get gold, my, but my eating disorder patients, so many of them are like, I'll, I'll say like, well, tell me about your week. Like what happened? And let's catch up a little bit. How'd the homework go? You know, I'm checking in. We're doing like our early, it's like we're first like 10, 15 minutes of the session. So tell me how things are. And they're like, it was great. Like I, I did a meal challenge out. It was, it was good. And I, knowing farewell, like I've already talked to their dietitian and I know it didn't go well, but I ask, right? I ask for them first. Yeah. And, you know, my dietitian was great. And like, and she was so proud of me and I was proud of me. And like, you know, I didn't think I could eat that, but then I did it, you know, and they're just blah, 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 all the while, like moving a lot in their chair. Usually they're very like physically agitated, just moving and grooving. And then they stop. They've, they've updated me. Things are good. They did their meal challenge. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. And I say, I'm going to need you to stop moving for a second immediately frustrated. I can tell by the way they look at me. And then I'll say, um, I talked to your dietitian and she told me that the, the meal, that challenge meal didn't actually go very well. You know, why do you think we're there's such, we have two such different uh, reactions or opinions or, you know, views on that situation. And they're immediately angry. And that frustration is a little bit different. That's like a low grade. They're just like, Ugh. and then they usually are like, they, they are kind of sarcastic. They can make some little snide comments. Like, I hate that you guys talk behind my back or um, I need to move. It helps me soothe. You're not letting me self-soothe. And it'll be in this very directive push back kind of way. That I can handle all day long. For any of my patients who worked with me when I was at the treatment center and I was with you for like eight hours, you know, I don't get tired of it. I will push back. I will hold the ground because that's what I'm there for. I'm there to help you feel better. I'm there to help you overcome your eating disorder. And I know that's uncomfortable. And sometimes that doesn't feel so good. So even though I know I'm there to make you feel better, that's like a goal for the future. Right now, it might feel a little bit worse before it gets better. So that happens all the time. No, I don't get frustrated. And I definitely am not going to stop working with them. It's just part of the process. And that's okay. It's not really about me. It's actually about me uh, pushing back at that coping skill that you desperately want to use, right? Because it serves a purpose and we're just digging into it. And then I've had patients get really angry and try to treat me like someone else, like uh, especially like a mom or a dad. Had a patient get really mad once uh, because I had to cancel a session last minute because I got food poisoning, and I was sick. Like I had, I got food poisoning like at like lunch, and so the whole my whole day was all fucked up. And I had to cancel. They were like a three p.m. appointment. I had to cancel, and they were like, "I can't." They left me this voicemail. I can't believe you canceled so late. It's so disrespectful. Of my time, and I pay. I mean, so mad. And then came into the next session even more mad. And we talked about it and turns out that their dad uh, always would say they'd show up for them and never showed up. And that me not showing up for them consistently was super triggering. Helped us dive in. Was I frustrated? No. Did I not want to work with them anymore? Not at all. But that's something that happened. And then that that can happen. Sorry. And then the final example I'm going to offer is when I have, I've had, I've had a few patients, not a ton, like actually a couple, just two, like get very aggressive, like threaten me, cuss, scream, yell probably still in the same line as that, like they're, you know, it's like a trigger because their parent or other caregiver did something similar and now they're lashing out. But the anger or aggression got to the point where I didn't feel safe. And that's where it crosses the line. 
when you threaten a therapist or, you know, call them every name in the book and tell them you're going to kill them and blah, or whatever it is. And they, they didn't say they were going to kill me. They were like, I could just punch you in the face right now. And if I, we were outside, I would just kick you. I mean, just, you know, crazy stuff. They were so ramp, like amped up. I didn't feel safe. I made them leave my office and I told them if they're going to act that way, I'm going to have to call the police and I cannot see them anymore. Now, both of those patients in those scenarios were able to get it together and not be that way again. However, because I was scared, I had to uh, tell the ladies that I share an office with, because there were three of us, that this was going on. And one stayed late for me once. I, I gave her a little gift card as a thank you, but she stayed late to make sure I was okay and that that person really left and didn't harm me. And Sean even showed up once and waited in the waiting room for me to make sure I was okay. So there are things that you do to, have to protect yourself. And if they hadn't gotten it together, then I would have ended the, I wouldn't have treated them anymore. And I have my own right to do that. It's like, I, cause I'd even called my malpractice attorney at the time and was like, Hey, this is happening. I don't know. And she was like, you don't have to see them anymore. So though, those are the things I just wanted to walk you through the levels because ang anger and frustration are normal in therapy and can be brought up for a whole gamut of reasons. But if you start like threatening your therapist or trying to actually physically harm them, they don't have to see you anymore. Okay. And there was a comment, the comment about like, how do you start talking about something if you know it's going to bring up anger? That's where I would start. I think it's really helpful for a therapist to know ahead of time. And I would tell them when you start, because you're starting with a new one, I would say, you know, there's a lot that I, I need to bring up that is anger-based and I don't really know how to keep it under control. So, and here's your ask. I want you to write this down. I want you to ask them, say, I would like to have some coping skills for my anger before we dig into that. Can we focus on that? That would be really helpful. Thank you perfect because what I want you to have on board are ways to cope because it's not about controlling the anger it's actually the controlling of the anger that makes it fester and get worse and it be really explosive right we can erupt at people and not I feel like it's out of control we always say like oh, I feel so out of control but in reality it was us stuffing it down into this like pot of ourselves then we we explode because we can only do that for so long and I think you will find that once you have these healthy ways to express your anger, meaning through like one that I still love is writing out a really nasty letter to someone and then ripping it up. And I'm talking like sometimes I tear the paper I'm writing so hard <laughs> and that helps or screaming angry music in my car or doing the full body shake even helps a little bit with the anger or even vent, just venting to my therapist or a friend about it. That also helps. Screaming into a pillow can help. So having some of these things that you can do to kind of offload a little bit of it, and it might even be journaling about it, that can help too. That's kind of the letter writing also. But having some of those things on board before you dive in will be really helpful so that you don't feel like your anger's just coming in and ruining everything and you're gonna shout at your therapist and maybe threaten them. And you know, I don't want you to get into a situation where then you like don't have support. So having those first and asking for that first will set you up for success. Okay, let's move on to question number five. And that question reads, hi, Katie. In my last session with my therapist, she told me something that my mom told her. My mom doesn't believe I was molested by my brother. It can be hard for parents to accept and believe that. Her exact words were, my brother and I used to be so close. 
The reason for my therapist to share this one sentence with me was because she believes in her experience and professional opinion that my brother groomed me so that I wouldn't tell. Unfortunately, yeah, that can be very common. I am so hurt by my mom not believing in me now with healing more than what, what he now with healing more than what he did to me more and more memories have come up i told my mom that it happened only two times however it happened from the age of six to nine years to nine years old frequently now i'm struggling if um on the fact of, of whether anyone will believe me my own mom doesn't believe me my anxiety has been so high since finding this out is this even worth telling my mom that it happened more than she knows? Also, is remembering more details and remembering more about what he did to me normal? Yes, that's very normal. Also, why can't I fully remember why I didn't tell anyone sooner? Thank you for all that you do. I re You really are changing the world to be a better place. Oh, I'm so glad you feel that way. I'm doing my best. Okay, this is a great question. And the, my first thoughts are honestly that we don't... I don't know if it's actually helpful for you to tell your mom that it happened more than you remembered initially. You can if, if you really need her to hear you, but we unfortunately cannot force people to believe us or understand. And I will tell you that parents do struggle with the acceptance and understanding that something bad could have happened to their child or that something may be, you know, quote unquote, wrong with their child. I can't tell you how many pa parents over the years have given me pushback on a diagnosis where they're like, my child is not bipolar. And I'm like, well, your child is 20 years old. And because they're like part, they live at home still usually. And the, a lot of my patients will have their parents come in for a session here or there. I'd be like, well, your child is 20 years old. And that spending spree that she went on is part of her mania. Remember, she's not sleeping. And and I'm happy to offer you some resources so you can educate yourself. But the, and they're like, you're wrong. You know, sometimes they'll even refuse to come back or uh, refuse to bring their child back in or whatever. And it's part of the reason why I don't usually work with children and I work primarily with adults. But you still have to deal with some parents here and there. And But parents have a tough time because they love us and they don't want to imagine something going wrong, let alone when we realize that one of our children harmed another one of our children. That can be a lot for a parent to take. And so I think in your mom's struggle to process and accept what happened, she denied, which is actually like another traumatizing event for you. And I'm so sorry that she's acting that way. You could, the only way I honestly would encourage you to bring it up with her is in session with your therapist and bring her there for just a part of your session, not the whole session, just a part of it, if you want to talk to her about it, because that ensures that it's done well, that you're given time to talk, that your therapist talks, and you know, your mom isn't doesn't just say more hurtful, harmful things, okay? Now, um, other people will believe you. I, I just want to leave it at that period. It's the, it's the, it's your mom struggling to accept or understand that one of her children could have hurt her another child. That's a lot. Imagine if that was you. Imagine if you had two kids, imagine, you know, just think of like, oh, you, you raised what you thought were two healthy, loving kids. And then you find out that one of your children was hurting the other. That's hard. And I think that's really more where this is coming out of other people will believe you. And it is, um, it's the memory okay so we have a lot of questions about memory it says also is remembering more details and remembering more about what he did to me normal yes because usually we stuff trauma experiences down deep and try to move past them and forget about them it's a way to keep us it's like repressed memories it's a way to keep us going forward in my book traumatized that's coming out i have a whole chapter about this and why that's like something that we do it's like an adaptive thing we do so that we can keep going forward and we can survive 
it, it just keeps us alive. It's like a coping skill, okay? So it's very normal for things that we all stuffed in there. And once we start digging in and opening it up, we it reveals itself and we can remember more. And even just digging into a memory, just think about it this way. When you talk to someone else about a memory, let's say I'm talking to I don't know, my friend Joanna. I'm like, oh my God, remember that trip we took to Mammoth? That was so much fun and blah, blah, blah. And then she's like, oh my God, yeah. Do you remember that weird drunk guy at the bar or something? I'm just making this up. And I'm like, oh my God, yeah. I didn't think about that till you told me. How many times has that happened to us? We would never have been able to recall that on our own, but someone just planting little seed and like asking about it or telling us part of it, we're like, oh my God. And then all these memories come flooding back. That's kind of what's happening in therapy is you're able to remember this little bit. And when you kind of, talked about it out loud and like scratched that a little boom all this other stuff comes out and we're like oh my god yeah we're taken back to that place and flashbacks can become more clear and the storyline of what took place can you know become more clear as well so super super normal and that um it says also why can't i fully remember why i didn't tell anyone sooner usually we're scared and our abuser, whether it's a child or another adult, can tell us that they're going to harm someone in our life. Or if they groomed us, like your therapist is, is like assuming kind of happened, if they groomed you, then they got it to a point where you may have believed that, you know, this was them caring for you or that you actually wanted to participate or it was it was the best way to to have a brother relationship, right? We could kind of, without being able to consent, because we're too young, we don't know what's happening, we can kind of uh, go along with it because we think it's what's right at the time. And so that could be why we didn't tell anyone sooner. Also threatening people too. Um, Yeah, I hope that that helps. I hope that that explains it. I have a video coming out Actually, by the time this goes live, it may have come out, but about child on child sexual abuse and 10 facts about it. And I hope that that helps because, and it was really difficult to to write the script and I had a wonderful member of our community assist in that. And I'm super grateful because it's hard to toe the line of, of yes, it's abuse. And also it's often that when a child abuses another child, they themselves have been abused. And how do we offer compassion to essentially what is both victims? It's a really tricky line. So I hope that I did it justice. Um, I'm happy to talk about it more, right? It's just like the first of many videos about that topic, but I I hope you find that helpful. Now, question number six says, hi, Katie, I have been suicidal for two years and there's only been a few days when my severe depression and suicidality have lifted a little bit. Would you, what would you say to someone who really, really doesn't want to live anymore? Is it ever okay to end it or end it all when nothing works? I've been struggling for so long. I've had generalized anxiety disorder, eating disorders, and depression with, and OCD for 15 years. And I think life is just not worth giving it a shot anymore. Nothing I ever do seems to work. I've been to at least five therapists of different modalities. I switched eight antidepressants, five antipsychotics, and three anxiety. I always say this word wrong, anxiolytics. Those are like a Xanax and stuff like that. My therapist says, since my issues are so deeply rooted in my low self, uh, low sense of self-worth, therapy will take a long time, even though I've been there two years now. I have seriously considered suicide. The only thing preventing me from it is knowing that it will destroy my family. But is it so wrong if I think I can't take this suffering any longer and just want to end it all? What do you think of such cases? Aren't there certain people who simply can't and don't get better despite having tried everything? Thank you a ton for all that you do. You've been an enormous part of my journey. I'm glad I could be there when you needed. And I have a lot of thoughts about this. Now, this is a great question. And I I think 
first, I just want you all to know that I do understand these thoughts and I do understand the feeling of like hopeless and helplessness and it feels like it's never going to get better and you can't get better. But I'm here to tell you that the, the thing that kind of, this is the, the frustration that people feel on both sides because depression and suicidal thoughts like make us have more nasty thoughts. Like it's your depression and your suicide that or suicidal ideation that is telling you that it can't get better like that it it won't and and you're it's not going to be ever worthwhile where someone who doesn't have depression like myself on the outside looks at this and says we haven't found the right thing yet and i know it's exhausting but please stick with me because i would be curious about like different types of treatment not just talk therapy now you said different modalities i would be curious about things like emdr i would wonder if you had looked into things like vagus nerve stimulation i had a patient in the hospital this is like oh god years ago now but she was deeply suicidal and had kept coming into the hospital because either she'd check herself in or her, I think it was her mom or her sister would check her in or she'd, you know, say she thought she was going to attempt and she would take herself to the hospital or she would unfortunately find her there because she had attempted. Okay. So that's kind of how she came to know us and to be there in the first place. Vegas nerve stimulation. She, they like implanted a little device over like under her, around her collarbone, life-changing, like a night and day, uh, suicidal thoughts and urges went away. Now, obviously the N in my study is just one. That's only one person. I know that that's completely anecdotal and there, it's not like, you know, tons of research, but I'm just curious if you've tried those types of things, things that are a little bit different, things that maybe aren't just talk therapy, because like I said earlier in research for my book, I learned that most people don't find talk therapy to be enough. Now I know that's when I'm talking about trauma and things like that, but I would, I don't think it's a big stretch to apply that to like all types of mental illness. Talk therapy works for some, not for all. We should try different things. And when it comes to medications, I'm always suspicious of people say they've been on a lot of different things. I'm curious how long, and if you've ever done like the cheek swab test where it tells you what medications are most likely to work for you, it's not 100%, like it's not like it tells you like this is gonna save your life, but that might help. And I'm always curious how long you, how long of a trial the doctor puts you on for each of those, because if, I mean, it says 15 years, so I don't know if you've been doing it for that long, but being in therapy for two years, if it's only been two years and you've been on eight antidepressants, five antipsychotics and three anxiolytics, that seems like we haven't really given them a full, a full trial. So I'm just curious. Those are my questions. And I, the things that I have to say for you or for anybody out there who's really struggling is trust me, it does get better. I know it's tried to snuff out your hope. It makes everything look black and dim and like it's never going to get better. But I'm here to tell you that it does and it will. We just haven't found that answer yet. But please, 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 as much as you can, hang in there for us as we try to work it out and try to figure it out. And if you have to go into treatment or put yourself in the hospital for a little while, that's okay too. We want to keep you safe because you have a life worth living. We can get you to a place where you feel better and things are better. And I know it's like, it's hard for you to even conceptualize that, but you are important. You have, you're on this earth for a reason. Don't let stupid depression and suicidal thoughts steal that from you and try to tell you that it's never going to happen because it will. We just have to find the right thing. And so I'd encourage you to, to try some different things like outside the box, like try seeing a different therapist, a different psychiatrist, ask for another opinion. Um, 
you know, make sure, and I don't know if you've been to your regular doctor, but make sure you see your regular doctor and that some of these symptoms aren't because of something else. For instance, a lot of people feel super, super depressed and lethargic when they have really low vitamin D. I'm, I'm not a doctor, but you should go get your blood work done and just check in on those things. We got you. We'll figure this out. Hang in there. I do not believe that it's ever okay to end things. Um, the only, and I'm not going to get into this very much, but the only reason I would ever say it's okay is for people who have, you know, a terminal illness and treatment's not going to help. And it gets to a point where it's, it's like so much discomfort for them to stay alive until they pass naturally. And I know people can disagree with that, but I, that's the only time I ever think that it's okay to take your own life. It gets better. I've seen it happen. I, that's why I just, I, I, I always want people to just, just hang on, just find something different, have other people help you, people in your life, reach out, we'll get support. We'll have somebody help you. You're important and your life will be worth living. We'll find a way. Okay. Let's move on to question number seven. And that says, Hey Katie, recently my therapist was talking about finding a way to release all the anger I have towards my childhood and not having the life I wanted and anger towards the circumstances that affected my childhood. She challenged me to find a physical way of releasing the anger. Good, good. I can't jog or exercise and screaming into a pillow is a bit weird. So any suggestions on how to let go of anger? Will it ever go? Don't I have the right to be angry? Maybe I'm holding on to the anger too much. These are all great questions. And I love that we had another question about anger as well, because it's just so common that we that we feel angry and that we can't get it out because anger can feel out of control. We've A lot of us have labeled anger as a bad or a negative emotion. I'm here to tell you there's no such thing. All emotions are okay. It's when we try to repress them, suppress them, push them away that they come out in ways when we're not expecting it instead of letting ourselves ride through that. And so, okay, physical ways to release anger. I would argue that maybe the physical physicality isn't for you. Um, we could try a body shake, but maybe physical is like the writing of a letter, write out the anger, write it, even if you tear through the pages, or maybe a physical thing is to create a collage of anger. Can we put Maybe it, it doesn't have to be photos. We can find photos out of magazines, but a lot of people don't have magazines lying around anymore. So maybe we can write the word anger in the middle. And then I want you to write some things you associate with that. Where's it coming from? Is it like mom, childhood, abuse? I, I'm just, I don't know. You, I know you didn't say that. I'm just making up things. Um, it could be uh, loneliness, frustration, sadness, hurt, you know, what comes up for you? And it could even be more specific than that. It could be like that time that my mom didn't come or was late picking me up from school and I was scared she wasn't going to come and get me. And I still think about that. Or, you know, what is it? Like you can get really specific and write that around that word anger. But those might be other ways to like get it out because it will go, but we have to continue doing these things. And I'm, I'm also part of this camp. I had to practice in therapy, finding ways to release my anger. One of my favorites, again, is writing those angry letters and not sending them. And then also screaming out to really angry music in the car. Those happen to work for me. Everybody's different. Um, but those those are just some ways that we can let it out. And we have to continue to do those things. There's also those things called rage rooms. I don't know if they're back and open because of COVID and stuff. But the rage rooms where you pay like 20 bucks and you go in and just break a bunch of shit. I've always wanted to do that and I haven't done it. But put it out there. Maybe you have one of those. Um Yes, you have the right to be angry. Anger, getting it out doesn't mean that the anger shouldn't exist or you don't have a right to feel it. Getting the anger out means that 
we just need you to have a healthy way to express it because anger in turns into anxiety and depression. Therefore, we need to find a way to let it out. Does that make sense? It's like doing you more harm than good as we hold it in. And also, yeah, and I think you are holding on to the anger a little too much. And it might be for some people, even myself, it can be some of the ways we define ourselves. Like, oh, I don't, I'm pretty easygoing. I don't really get angry that much. Or, oh, you know, or some people take pride in like, people know not to mess with me. I don't get angry. But when I do, it's scary, right? And we can like take pride in the way that we kind of use our, our anger. And instead, I would encourage you to dig into in journaling what what your anger is protecting you from. It's usually, spoilers, protecting us from pain or hurt. And I assume in, in your situation, you're you're mad about not having the life, you know, that you wanted because of your childhood and all the shitty things that happened. But really why you're mad is because those things hurt you and they affected you today and they've led to whatever they've led to, depression, anxiety, upset, abuse, and trauma. I don't know. What are we dealing with now because of what happened in our childhood? Can we... Can we dig into that a little bit? Because I think it's in that, for me at least, I'll give you an example. For me, my anger was protective and it was, I'd had this really shitty relationship. And so I kind of cut myself off from people in that way where I was like, I'll never let anybody get that close to me again or know me that well. And that that wall that I put up isolated me and it never allowed, I never gave myself a chance to process what was really pain and hurt. Instead, I was just angry and I would like, I wanted to lash out at everybody all the time. And when I finally acknowledged what it really was and why I was actually doing it, I cried a lot and I felt shitty for a little while. And then I have to tell you, it felt so much lighter because keeping that all in was just so toxic for me. I wasn't sleeping well. My other relationships were suffering because I was like super angry and frustrated all the time. And anyway, I don't want to go into too much detail because it's not what you're here for, but I just want you to know that you do have the right to be angry, but we have to figure out what, because anger is usually a secondary emotion. I mean, it's protecting the primary. What's that primary emotion? And can we at least try to think about where it's coming from and why we feel that way? And that will, in essence, help us like better express it so that we let go of it. Does that make sense? I hope so. Okay, let's move on to question number eight. And that question says, I was reading up on HIPAA for uh, school recently, and I forget what HIPAA stands for, but I'm going to tell you guys, I'm going to look it up really quick. Uh, Stands for, here we go. It's like Google knows me. Sounds Stands for the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act. I always forget that portability. So that's what HIPAA is. And it's, it was in 1996, it was enacted, you guys, and it's really just like a federal law that requires like certain standards in order to protect our privacy when we have like sensitive materials, like health records, for instance, okay? So I was reading up on HIPAA for school recently and was wondering, why can patients be denied access to their psychotherapy notes? Great question. It seems unproductive if we can't even see the notes and all our providers may see inaccurate notes and are making decisions based on something we can't even see to provide input or fact check or self-advocate. It disempowers us from being able to have agency over our care. Can you please explain why providers are allowed to deny us access to our psychotherapy notes and records? Can a different provider or healthcare professional with access to the records provide the notes to the patient who was denied from receiving them from the provider who wrote them? Is there any process to dispute access denials? Okay, great question. And in short, Patients can be denied access because a therapist or other mental health professional can deem the access to do more harm than good. 
essentially like it might not be helpful for you to read through the notes and i've i've talked about this off and on i think i have a video called like what does a therapist really write in their notes and i think i address it there but maybe not but either way there are a lot of times that we don't allow access because we think it could be harmful meaning like let's say i'm seeing a patient and they haven't quite accepted that what happened to them was abuse and that their self-injury is coming out of that maybe they just think they you know that that's just the way they cope when they feel stressed. I don't know. They're not there yet. They haven't come to that realization. But in my notes, I, I say, you know, patient hasn't realized that this is due to the sexual abuse they sustained from, I think, an uncle or a grandpa still trying to figure out. Those things are in notes. Those things can be traumatizing, overwhelming. And if you're not there yet, they can be really hard for you to take in. That's why they can deny us access. And that's why it's so specific to like mental health based notes our medical stuff you always have access to because it's much it's it's very clear you know you came in for a broken leg and they fixed it right there's nothing else that's happening like that we know that and those are usually in like a portal online and you now and you can get into them anytime but when it comes to our mental health notes they can or cannot be accessed using that and they can deny us access if they think it could do more psychological harm than good. Now I know that that sucks and it can feel like it's disempowering, but it's actually the reason that that exists is so that we can protect our patients from themselves. Because I do have some patients who don't, like I personally as a, ther as a, as a therapist and a patient don't wanna see my notes. Like I don't, I'm never gonna call Jana and be like, hey, can I get all my uh, notes on file for, I don't wanna read that shit. I, it's not helpful to me, I don't need to. But I will have her send them over to my new therapist because I don't want to have to repeat everything. But um, I and you can, so so yes, so that, to answer the final question kind of, can a different healthcare provider with access to the records, they could give you access if they felt it was okay. But I have to tell you, most will not deny you access unless there's a real big reason why. I don't know, anybody out there, if you disagree and you've been denied access and you're frustrated, let me know. Because in my experience with like myself and my colleagues that I talk with regularly, I've never heard of someone doing this. I have personally like tried to persuade someone against reading notes from another clinician that had given them to me. Um, and they, they agreed that it probably wasn't best for them. But if they wanted them, I would have given them to them. I just didn't think it was best, but I didn't think it was a big enough of a deal to not allow them access, if that makes sense. And that was just my professional opinion. And so, yes, you can get access through another provider if they have those documents themselves. And is there any process to dispute access denials? I am, that I'm not sure of. I don't believe we went into that when I was in school. Um, possibly, I would assume within the court system, with some regard, you'd be able to, you know, make your case. But I bet, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I honestly, truly feel like this doesn't happen very often. I'm not saying that, you know, it never happens, but I'm just saying, you know, it, it, I've never heard of it happening. And usually if they deny, there's an actual big reason why, and an important reason. And I can't foresee anyone like giving you access later, no matter what you did, if they thought it was going to be that detrimental to your health or mental health. Does that make sense? I hope that helps. And sorry, I don't know about the process to dispute it. I, you know, uh, the legalities of things, because I haven't done this, I don't know. And I, I could, I could ask around, but because, like I said, I haven't heard from any of my colleagues. I, I reached out and none of them have told me that they've done this before. So, so far we don't know. I'm sorry. 
Okay, question number nine says, hi, Katie, what is your take on those who believe mental illnesses aren't real? Any reasons you've heard to try and prove this statement? I've heard a few different arguments, but one that stood out to me is that if people were incentivized to stop their behavior, they would stop. So if someone has depression and they're lying in bed all day, if someone pays them to stop, they'll get out of bed. That's not true. It stood out to me because it not only makes sense to me, but I think it can confuses illness with a bad habit and it really doesn't understand what mental illness is. Okay. For people who don't believe mental illness is a real thing, you can show them brain scans of people with and without depression, with and without PTSD, with and without anxiety. The brain is actually different. Also, you can see, uh, what is it, the FMR, F, fMRIs, a functional, I think that's what's called. Anyway, you can see the brain activity. It's different, someone with depression, someone without, someone with PTSD, someone without it's different. Our brain actually changes. So if they need to see a goddamn broken bone to believe that a leg is broken, then they can see our brain having a difficult time and they can then shut the fuck up. Because if you paid, I'm sorry, that's, I don't even, this argument just doesn't even make any sense to me because for those of you out there who are severely depressed and struggling to get out of bed, if someone paid you you probably still couldn't, or you may be able to get out of bed, but that doesn't mean your depression's not there. That doesn't even make any sense. That's just, that's one action. What about our mood? Does the money make them feel better? I'm pretty sure it doesn't. Um, and that's like just one symptom of depression. What about like the lethargy, the difficulty concentrating, the body aches, the uh, the no sex drive, the food, like having an appetite or not having an appetite? What about that? And so my take on people who don't believe mental illness is real is honestly at this point at 2021 they're just stupid information is everywhere we have so much science to back up the fact that mental illness exists and if they haven't seen it themselves then they must be living under a rock and if they have and still like refuse to believe that it exists then that's their choice. We can't force people to actually be educated and be kind, compassionate and understanding humans if they don't want to believe it, they don't have to, but they're even by that, uh, that argument that stood out to you, even with that, you can just see how, how limited their understanding or education around mental illnesses are to think that just the act of getting out of bed means that we're no longer depressed. If someone was to pay us to get out of bed, sure, we might get up, but we're still depressed. Like that doesn't accomplish anything. Am I able to focus? Has my appetite gotten back together? Is my mood lifted? Do I enjoy things like I used to? Fuck no. I'm still goddamn depressed. I just got out of bed because you're going to pay me because you don't understand mental illness because you're ignorant. Um, I don't want to get too fired up. <laughs> but that those are my thoughts. And so you can look up those brain scans, you guys. You can find them out like brain, uh, what is it? Brain differentiation or brain scan differences between depression and not or something like that. And they'll come up and you can see them. Boom, boom, boom. There was a ton of research articles. I want to say it's probably been like six years ago now, maybe even longer that they realized certain parts. Um, I think even Morgan Adams, Rylan's sister, yeah, she had her brain scan done because she struggles with depression and it showed certain parts of her brain just aren't as active, like the reward center and certain parts were overactive. Like for those of you with trauma, you know, like your, your amygdala and also other parts of your limbic system are like firing all the time. It's part of our stress response. That stuff is highlighted and often enlarged. Other parts like our prefrontal cortex, they're thinned, not as active. You can prove it. The proof is in the scans.
also the proof is in people's stories and experience but when people are stupid sometimes you just show them like actual like pictures maybe they need a picture book because they don't read as often as they should sorry i'm just throwing some shade because i get really frustrated with stuff like that okay final question question number 10 says hi katie before i ask my question i just want to say thank you to you thank you to you and sean for putting the time to do putting in the time to do aka sorry i stumbled on that i think it helps a lot of us feel heard and validated and helps us find our voice i'm so glad that that's really reassuring. I'm glad that you feel that you're getting such a benefit out of it. that's why that's why we put in the time to do this. My question is about therapists hospitalizing someone because of suicidal thoughts. Lots on suicide this week. I know they have to do it if someone is an immediate threat to themselves. Correct. But what if they want to do it and survive? What if the only reason they want to do it is because they feel like it's the only way to express how they really feel? There will still be no plan or intent, but would a therapist be mandated to hospitalize them anyway? No, we're only mandated if the threat is imminent. And let me, I'll dig into this because I, I understand the confusion. And this is a good question. If the threat is imminent, there's a plan and, and that meaning imminent means it's going to happen soon. There's a plan. They have the means to do it. it. Essentially, it's a credible threat then a therapist that worries about your safety is going to hospitalize you. However, if you tell your therapist that this is the reason behind it, they're going to want to process that through and talk with you about it. They're also going to put you on a suicide suicide safety plan. If you wonder what those are, I have a video on my channel to search Katie Morton suicide safety plan and it will come up. I have the videos about that so that you understand what it what kind of plan we should have in place before we potentially even like get to a place where we would try to take our own life, right? We want to create the safety plan when we feel somewhat better. It doesn't have to mean we feel great, but not when we're in the depths. We're, we're too far into it to be able to create that at that time, if that makes sense. So we're preparing ahead. So creating a safety plan, they'll probably try to do that with you. Try to understand you know, your need to express how you feel and try to find other ways to do so. We can do so through writing, talking to people about it. We can express it through all sorts of different avenues that don't involve harming ourselves. And I know you may think, but this is the only way that feels correct. Let's get creative. Think about it. Let's talk about it. And if you were my patient, you told me this, and this was the reason, that's exactly what I would do. I would seek to understand and talk with you more about it. I would create a safety plan with you so that I would ensure you were okay. I would probably do check-ins in between sessions to make sure that you aren't trying to harm yourself. I would have, you know, some details around like, okay, if I've checked in with you and I don't hear back in two hours, who can I call? And I would call those people to check in on you. We'd have our plan in place to ensure that you are safe as we work through this. Because I hear that from my, my self-injury patients a lot too, that that the injury is the only way for them to express how they really feel. And I know it can feel that way, but I challenge you. And I, I was like, challenge. I was going to say a challenge. I'm going to challenge you to try to come up with some other ways to, to express it and try those things out. Essentially considering like those suicidal thoughts as like an unhealthy coping skill. And we're going to try to find other ways that are more healthy to cope so that we don't feel the need to resort to that. Stick with it. You got this. I know it's hard. I know we can feel like that's the only way, but it's not. I'm here to tell you it's not. And we can be creative. We can come up with some other ideas. Okay. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for watching. Thank you for leaving all of your comments and your questions and for sharing this podcast. You all are wonderful, wonderful people. I love our community. Thank you all so much for just being you and allowing me to do what I do. And I love to get the feedback. I love that that this podcast has been helpful. The person who asked that last question, that, that really means a lot to me. Thank you all. Have a wonderful week. I love you. Take care of yourselves and I'll see you soon. Bye.